unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. On my own again On my slow, dark tree How is it I found My juice skin spinning down Thanks for downloading the penultimate, the wonderful penultimate episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, my name is Nathan Gilmore. I'm going to be your moderator this week. I am an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, and I'm joined this morning, uh, first of all, from Christian Humanist Headquarters in Tallahassee, Florida by Mr. Michael Farmer. Michael, how are you doing? Pretty good, Nathan. Um, I should point out that uh, it is not the penultimate episode of the podcast. It's just the penultimate episode of the podcast for the spring. So, oh, true uh, enough, true enough. If any of our hardcore <laughs> fans had a heart attack thinking this was uh, next week was going to be our final episode ever. Uh, like, yeah, no! Sorry, Mom. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, your mom listens? Oh, yeah, every yeah, week. My, my, my parents don't. No, we're going to do this uh, this podcast like Smallville and, and just try to eke it out as many seasons as we possibly can. And since we have basically no budget, it doesn't even matter if nobody's uh, listening. <laughs> anyway, uh, coming to you not from Smallville, uh, but from <laughs> Athens, Georgia, uh, from the basement of beautiful Park Hall. I hope that it doesn't smell like the bathroom this morning. Mr. David Grubbs, how are you doing, David? I'm doing very well. Well, doesn't doesn't smell like a bathroom. Was it smelling like a bathroom at some point? Uh, oh, it almost seems like all when, points. Uh, oh. It seems like when I was there about twice a year, the the Park Hall Gentlemen's Club, which is the men's restroom right there in the middle of the <laughs> office block, would <laughs> overflow and make the basement smell like an overflowed toilet for about a week. Ah, and, and since there's no windows bad. in anybody's offices. Yes, I always felt. Now, I, I um, I should point out. And I know this is off, off, uh, off message, but I, uh, I had an office there that I never, I've never actually been in. <laughs> I think I still have a key for it. I never once went into the office, but uh, every time I was down there, I felt like the underground man from, uh, from Dostoevsky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that joke had surfaced once or twice down there. Anyway, this week on the Christian Humanist blog, getting us back on message, uh, we've got a couple. Blog post responses to our friend Sam Mulberry over at CWC, the radio show. Uh, he emailed us uh, some questions about sports, statistics, narrative, all that kind of groovy stuff. David Grubbs and I took a run at it. You can go read that there. Also, this week, uh, we've got a pretty good book review of a biography of Barack Obama written by our own Michael Farmer. Uh, as usual, you also get lectionary posts, all that kind of groovy stuff. Go read the blog, comment, jump in on the discussion. We love to hear from our listeners, from our readers. Speaking of listener feedback, we got a very nice email this week from Arnold Pennington. Uh, as far as we know, our first Christian humanist listener who didn't already know us, 
Michael, what did Arnold have to say? <laughs> I, uh, I'll, I'll just read from his email here. He says, uh, I'm writing to tell you how much I enjoy listening to your podcast. I find the topics interesting, your delivery both insightful and playful, and your interaction hilarious. You each have a great sense of humor. I look forward to each weekly release. See, guys, That's... I told you. Yeah. <laughs> Arnold thinks you're funny. Well, he doesn't say who's the funniest. Uh, <laughs> when discussing the, the detective genre... He says, we failed to mention Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency by Douglas Adam um, of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fame. It and its sequel, The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, are filled with the Adam's humorous take on the detective archetype. I'm saddened that the series ended with Adam's death. Have either of you read uh, either of those books? I have, and I'll talk about it here in a second, but go ahead and get the rest of the email in. He says he's also a Terry Pratchett fan, who I believe we talked mm. about either in the science fiction episode or the episode immediately following it. Um but I suppose that Vimes and Carrot stray far from the model set by Holmes and Watson. He says that he would enjoy hearing the topics of aesthetics, the fine arts, or arts in the church discussed. Anything addressing postmodernism in the church would be interesting as well. And he says that he appreciates our tribute to Michael Spencer, and I wonder if one of you would provide a book review when his book is published. Uh, and that depends on whether we can get the book for cheap or free, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> It so often does. <laughs> I um, suspect one of us will uh, one of us will review that book. I, I think Nathan and I are both interested in reading it. I don't know about you, David. I didn't know there was going to be one, but then I'm I'm the guy who lives in a hole. The book by the wonderful man with a terrible title. <laughs> in a hole in a hill lived a grubs. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the, the grubs are uh, cousins of the Baggins on his mother's side. <laughs> anyway, uh, to it, to address Arnold's email real quick. Uh, I have read Dirk Gently, and I read the first half of Long Dark Tea Time. For whatever reason, I, I found this, the second one to be so drab and so flat compared to Dirk Gently that I couldn't even finish it. So I love Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Uh, couldn't stand Long Dark Tea Time. Uh, Grubbs, how about the Terry Pratchett bit? Okay, Vimes and Carrot are, well, and and the entire Ankmore Pork uh Night Watch, which is it's it's sort of their 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 hard it's this their hard bitten police force um, in the the sort of metropolis of Terry Pratchett's uh, fantasy world called the Discworld. Um, there, the books that focus on these characters are just fantastic send ups of uh, the mystery genre, the hard pull detective genre, the uh, the police procedural. You know, it, Everything that has to do with with crime and police and law and law enforcement gets sent up in those novels, but in a way that's that's really very smart. Um, Sam Vimes is the head of the watch. He's very much, uh, particularly in the early books, uh, a Dirty Harry reference, but he's uh, Dirty Harry who who has been he he's burnt out, and so he he's kind of our 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 cynic. Who represents uh, represents ideal justice, but doesn't believe that that the law accomplishes it, and so he's continually frustrated by the limits that the government puts on his ability to to be just. Um, on the other hand, is uh, one of his underlings, a, a, a redheaded, big, strapping lad named Carrot, who is simultaneously the idealist. And the one who is committed to the law as it's written, and it's it's really really interesting the way uh, 
the way Terry Pratchett plays those off of each other because you don't end up thinking that either the idealist is right or the cynic is right. They're both right. Um, and you also end up, I think, having a much greater respect for justice as something different from law, but also a, a much greater respect for law itself. And it's, it's, it's a really interesting satire that, that, that just makes you think all the way around without, uh, without really leaving you, leaving, leaving you cynical and hating anything in particular. Um, it's brilliant stuff. All right. Oh, one yeah, other, my, one other we, thing Arnold said is he mm-hmm. would like at, at if any of us uh, watch Lost, he would like at the end of the uh, season for us to explain some of the references and their uh, the reasons for their inclusion in the show. Now, I have uh, never seen Lost. I've never seen one minute of it. I feel kind of guilty, but uh, that's the way it is. <laughs> Do either of you watch Lost, David? Mm, no. All I right. Have, I, I don't have television. <laughs> hipster. <laughs> Uh, I have watched every episode of every season of Lost, so uh, Arnold, I will plan after May 25th when the series finale airs, I will plan to write a series of posts uh, about some of the philosophical questions, some of the allusions, some of the character names. Uh, I'll I'll certainly be happy to write about Lost this summer. So there you have it, Arnold, from your mouth to God's ears. Yeah, I will say that in the... uh... (laughs) The, the community group at my church that I attend, some people were talking about loss. I didn't know that was what they were talking about. And they just kept talking about Locke. And I tried to get yes. in on the conversation. I was like, hey, I've read Locke. And they're like, he, <laughs> and, and they were like, he wrote a book? <laughs> anyway, it was... Yeah, yeah was the, there's actually a Locke and a Hume and a Rousseau and yeah. a C.S. Lewis and a Faraday. And yeah, oh, I mean... Grief. The, the writers of this show are definitely playing with Dickensian, actually a little bit less than a little bit less subtle than Dis- Dickensian names. <laughs> I guess more like Ben Johnson names. Yeah. Somewhere anyway. between Dickens and uh, Edmund Spencer. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, at any rate, uh, this week, uh, one of the things that I am most interested in seeing is how people's theologies, philosophies, ideas get played out in particular instances. And there's one character in the Bible who really brings out people's systematic leanings in ways that are different from other characters. Now, I realize people have all sorts of disputes about Jesus. Uh, Certainly people have disputes about Paul. Uh, Folks can even get pretty animated about the character of Moses. But one of those characters, because there's not much material about him in the New Testament— Whenever you talk about him, uh, people reveal to you a lot about their own assumptions going in because they have to fill in some of the gaps that the text leaves. Now, the character I'm talking about uh, is Judas Iscariot. Uh, He appears in the canonical Gospels. Uh, He also appears briefly in the book of Acts. Uh, As far as I know, guys, and if you, I can't think of any appearances other than in those five books of Judas in the New Testament. Can you think of any exceptions to that? No. All right. I I was pretty sure I was making a safe claim there, but I wanted to make sure before we proceeded. Um, And because he comes to us primarily in textual terms, uh, because he comes to us in such spare narratives, uh, one of the interesting things that I like to ask people is how they imagine Judas looking when they imagine him. So I want to go around the horn, and I want to start with Michael. 
Uh, when you imagine Judas, Michael, what does he wear? What does his face look like? Uh, what does Judas look like? Well, I always pictured him as a cross between your stereotypical white Anglo-Saxon Jesus and Scar from The Lion King. <laughs> so right. he looks a lot like Jesus, but he's thinner and has darker hair and he wears a darker robe. So that's uh, always how I've pictured him. Is he David? voiced by Jeremy Irons? Uh, I, I guess he is. Yeah, I guess he, I yes. guess he sounds like Score. David, don't don't get me singing the Lion King soundtrack. It, Side. Our, our listeners will only suffer for it. Um, honestly, this 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 question, uh, I was like, huh, because I don't think I'd ever actually tried to imagine what he looked like. Um, if 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 I was asked the question, I would have said he looked. I've, First century Jewish, uh, but I mean, I, I can't imagine if if no one knew that he was the villain. Um, you know, when the twelve are, are at the Last Supper and Jesus is like, "One of you guys is going to betray me." I, I I can't imagine that Judas was kind of like over on over in the corner twirling his mustache. <laughs> you know, and and they're all like, "Who could it be?" You know. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. So, so yeah, I would be very reluctant, you know, if I if I was casting, you know, if I was going to cast Judas, I'd make him look as much like Jim Caviezel as possible. Well, you always look at those uh, Orthodox icons and you wonder how they didn't know it was Judas when he was the only one without the halo. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right? Oh, man. <laughs> only Jesus could see the halos. <laughs> I don't, I don't know, but... Yeah, it's, it's 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 an interesting question, but I, I you know if 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 I'm imagining what he looks like, it has nothing to do you know his his appearance. I I can't imagine a a a character who is a a, a traitor type who looks the part. Okay, uh, it, it that would seem to militate against <laughs> what he does. Right, right. What about you, Nathan? Well, I'm, you know, I, I think this is largely a product of uh, Nikos Kazantzakis' book, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, which we'll talk about later in the podcast. But uh, uh, he cast Judas as a sort of zealot revolutionary type. Ooh. And it was an interesting picture of him, something that I really hadn't thought of before. Uh, so I guess I sort of imagine him, you know, like David said, blending in, but I sort of imagine him, uh, you know, as someone who carries a weapon, uh, as someone who, you know, is ready to, uh, spring into action, perhaps more so than the more commercially minded, for lack of a better phrase, James, John, Peter, uh, you know, he's someone who, now that I've read that novel and now that, you know, I've thought about that, you know, I, I tend to imagine him as someone who is involved in political struggle rather than in, you know, the sort of hard scrabble life of making a living. And, you know, again, you know, it, it's one of those things, the question is interesting because you do have to fill in blanks, right? Uh, with Judas, you really don't get background for him like you do with James and John. You know, you don't know who his father is. You don't know what his living was. Uh, all you get is really this story towards the end of each of the four canonical Gospels. Mm-hmm. Nathan well, is Iscariot. What? That's not his last name because people didn't have last names in first century. <laughs> right, right. What does Iscariot mean? You know, honestly, I should have looked that up before the podcast, but I didn't. So uh, I, did. I, I will post on the blog. I'll, I'll Gr- make Gr- it. Grubsy looked it up. Oh, did Grub? 
Yeah. <laughs> um, Doing your work for you. Yeah. It's uh, often either, either taken as a reference to where he comes from, the man from the village of, Carithi- of uh, I believe, Carioth. Okay. Or um, there is a minority view that it's a garbled reference to the uh, Sicarii of uh, about 50 oh, okay. years the after. Yeah, the yeah. dagger and the, the the zealot assassins of of a not too much later but later generation that uh, that they were identifying Judas as one of those, which would fit in with your 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 notion of him as okay. A, so as so in a, other words, that view might have been older than I realized. As a dagger pack and zealot, yeah. All right, all right. Well, at any rate, I you know I didn't look up the name Judas or didn't look up the name Iscariot, but. I did some thinking about the name Judas, and one of those things is that, you know, Judas is a Latinized spelling of the Old Testament name that the King James renders as Judah, J-U-D-A-H. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, David, relate a little bit about a couple of the other biblical Judas that we get. Uh, one of them is one of the sons of Israel, uh, sons mm-hmm. of Jacob. Uh, another one is the... Uh, revolutionary who is at the center of the books of the Maccabees, uh, you know, these predecessors, these earlier Judases, if you will, uh, what are their stories and how do you think they play into the story of the New Testament Judas, if at all? Um, well, obviously the, 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 the Judah of Genesis is the one I know better because that book's actually in my Bible. Um, (laughs) uh, Judah is one of the sons of, of Jacob slash Israel. Uh, Judah is one of the many sons of Leah and therefore a brother to Reuben and Simeon and, oh, the daughter whose name starts with a D whose name escaped Dinah. Yeah. Um, which means that, that, uh, Judah was one of, uh, one of the brothers, uh, the, the, I believe Reuben and Simeon are the ones who, who go out and kill the guys from in the town where the, the, the fellow rapes Dinah. Um, You're correct. Yeah, Judah, Judah is part of the group that, that collects the loot after it's done. Right, he's um, also the subject of the bed trick by his daughter-in-law. Yes. So, yeah, Judah has, a, has many, many stories told about him in Genesis. <laughs> um Probably the the one most pertinent, uh, if we're gonna if we're gonna look for archetypes, uh, there are two things in towards the end of Genesis. Uh, Judah is the uh, when when the brothers turn on Joseph, they're out keeping their sheep. None of them like Joseph, Rachel's oldest son, and when when Joseph shows up out in the fields, they say let's let's kill him because um, hey we can't we can. Um, Reuben, and because he's out snitching on him. Yes. <laughs> uh, Plus he thinks he's hot stuff with his uh, fancy coat. His amazing Technicolor dream coat. Excuse me. Um, yeah. Uh, Reuben, the, the eldest son, says, hey guys, let's not kill him outright. Let's just drop him in a pit. And Reuben's intending to come and rescue him later. Um... No one, none of the other guys know this, including Judah, which is uh, which is interesting because later on, when uh, this band of Ishmaelites comes by, Judah says, "Hey guys, let's not leave him to die. He's our own flesh and blood. Plus, what does that profit us? 
So let's sell him to these guys over there. That way he lives, we haven't killed him, and we get a bit of money. So uh, that you know, the story of Judah being the one whose idea it is to sell off Joseph um, to uh, to the the uh, I, I presume slave traders or or at least merchants of some kind who don't mind buying slaves off of guys they meet on the road, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> slave that looks remarkably like the other guys. <laughs> <laughs> like, like he could be your brother. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Um, so, so there's that. Um, and then finally, at the end of the book of Genesis, uh, before um, Jacob's death, he blesses all of his sons in this this uh, this sort of prophetic passage, where he describes each of them allegorically. A lot of them get assigned some kind of animal. Um, Judah is assigned the lion. And he's described as as powerful that that uh, that dominance will be uh, one of the one of the traits of his descendants that the scepter will not pass from his house. So when we get to uh, uh, the uh, the Revelator's vision in uh, John's Apocalypse, and they you know they say the you know, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's 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 what this is a, a reference back to. It's a it's revelation harking back to Genesis and to uh Judah's or uh Jacob's figuring of, of Judah and his descendants as as the lions of the nation of Israel. Um so I guess going into the gospels, Judah has these two th- has has or Judas his name has these kind of mixed meanings you know first the, the the notion of of Judah as as a nation as a lion as a ruling strong entity but also frankly Judah's uh, somewhat crooked character someone who will sell you for money yeah someone who will sell you for money <laughs> um if we want to look at Judas Maccabeus uh that's uh, that's a bit different, bit more in line with the the lion half of Ju- of Judah than the the selling your brother half of Judah, and that harks back to the you know the 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 period between uh, the Protestant testaments when um, oh after after Alexander's Macedonian Empire falls apart and gets chopped up, um, uh, Palestine is under the domination of of uh, warring Greek uh, overlords. And one of these, Antiochus Epiphanes, attempts to desecrate the temple and uh, is resisted by, uh, I believe Simeon was the father's name, and then uh, the sons of Simeon, among them uh, Judas, or Judah, and they earn the name Maccabee, Maccabee, which is uh, Hebrew for hammer, because, uh, well, apparently they would put the beat down on the Greeks. Just like Tom DeLay, right? Yes, like like or MC. <laughs> yes, so there's also that the notion of uh, a sense of of the the Jewish national pride, but also resistance to foreign domination, very overt resistance. Um, the lion backed into a corner, and then it bites you. So yeah, that's Judah. All right. Well, to get forward, I mean, to the 
I, w- I want our listeners to keep those images in mind because these are things, you know, although I'm not denying that, you know, there was a historical figure named Judas. It was a common enough name in first century Palestine. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly an ancient reader, a first century reader, second century reader uh, would be carrying these affil- these associations with the name in addition to any hi- historical reference. It's one of those things where, you know, as moderns, we have a little bit of trouble. And I mean, you know, uh, we were just now joking about, you know, Dickensian character names and Ben Johnson and Fairy Queen. And I mean, we sort of chuckle mm-hmm. at those as moderns. I'm certainly as guilty of that as the next guy because we think it's a little bit uh, <laughs> heavy handed to name your character uh, in a way that reveals the, the character's character. Uh, but, you know, this is something that is entirely a modern hang up. So, I mean, you know, that Judas has this name that has all this weight attached to it. We need to keep that in mind. Well, at any rate, to get to the more familiar Judas, uh, the obvious scandal that the New Testament and more generally early Christians had to deal with is when they looked back and told this story, they have to account for the fact that Jesus picked this man, uh, the one who would betray him to the Jerusalem authorities, rather than any of hundreds of seemingly suitable Galilean men. Uh, Michael, I mean, what explanation have you have you heard or read for this selection? How do you deal with it intellectually, theologically, however it is that you deal with it? Well, the way I see it, uh, Jesus knew he was going to be crucified, and he knew that he needed to be crucified for the salvation of humanity, and so he'd pick someone on purpose who he knew would betray him, and that's the answer I guess you would expect from a Calvinist because it gives Christ utter sovereignty over the whole matter. I figure that's why you ask me this question, Nathan. Uh, what other explanations have you heard? Well, well, first of all, when I'm, I mean, David, do you basically agree with that account of things? Well, yeah, I, I believe Jesus knew what was going to go down and is working. Uh, you know, he he's you know Jesus is already as God car- God incarnate is. Uh, God, you know, a, a piece of God's sovereignty walking around where we can see it, and Jesus as you know, a- acting acting as the sovereign God who's who's working things according to the counsel of His will, um, chooses the one who will betray Him knowingly, um, you know, uh, and for that reason, because there were prophecies, and you know, they had to, you know. They had to be fulfilled. God had his story to tell, and that story had a traitor in it. So there you go. All right. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Michael, I, you're right. I did, you know, intentionally ask this to a podcast full of Calvinists, uh, <laughs> knowing what sorts of answers I would get. I mean, and, and on a basic level, I don't disagree with that account. You know, one of the things that I would add to that, you know, a, an extra layer of meaning, if you will, not negating the meaning that you all uh, – see in it. Uh, but you know, one of the interesting things is that among Jesus' disciples are not only, uh, Simon the Zealot, uh, who, you know, the gospel of Luke uses that term for a, a nationalist militant, uh, Mm -hmm. but also Matthew, the tax collector, which we know historically, uh, was not simply an IRS man, as little as people might like IRS men right now. Those two Uh, guys would have been at each other's throats. Well, yeah, because the tax collectors were not collecting taxes for an independent Israel, but they were collecting money for the occupying pagans 
Right. Uh, so therefore, they were collaborators. And, you know, the Sicarii who emerged, you know, that David mentioned earlier, who emerged somewhere around the uh, probably about the 50s or the 60s A.D., uh, more often than not, tax collectors were their targets for assassination because they were collaborators. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that, you know, again, if you think of Judas as uh, someone who is a betrayer and, you know, is part of a providential scheme, uh, which I think are valid things, you know, I'm all right with that as long as you back up and say, all right, what does his selection mean in the context of the other apostles, right? So in other words, if you do imagine him as someone who has Jewish nationalist leanings, he's also in there with the tax collectors. If you think of him as someone who thinks that he knows better than Jesus, how things are supposed to go down in Jerusalem, which is, you know, yeah. one explanation that I find compelling. Uh, he's right there with Peter who rebukes him for saying that he's going to be crucified. So, you know, one of the things about Judas is, you know, like David said about the imagined physical appearance, I think that we shouldn't put too much of a psychological distance between him and the other apostles. Mm -hmm. I think that he is motivated by, very, very similar things to what the other apostles are interested in. David, you want to jump in there? Yeah, because I, I, I'd like to say that Christ calls him, uh, he, Christ calls the 12, um, and then there are, there are years of ministry um, after, after that calling, during which time I have, a, you know, I, we are not told that Judas was sitting back the whole time, ironically distanced, waiting for his cue to become the villain. Um, you know, presumably there was, there was a period in which he and the, and the other, you know, the other disciples were getting on, getting on fruitfully. There was a time when he was commissioned with the rest of the 12 to go without sandals and staff and purse among the villages. There was a, I mean, yeah, there was a time when, when Judas would have been the guy that showed up in your village and uh, preached that the kingdom was coming. He would have been one of the ones that uh, cast out demons and healed. And Jesus said, yeah, hey guys, don't get too excited about that. You know, right. he, you know, he was, he was one of those guys. So I, I, you know, I, th I think that you're right that we, we, we shouldn't reduce this real man to the thing he did at the end right. and say that all of Jesus' purpose in selecting him was to accomplish that thing in the end. That was certainly part of it, but there were also other things that God did with Judas, including good things. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, that because Judas doesn't get, get named individually uh, until really the end of the story, with a couple exceptions in John, uh, John mm -hmm wants to foreshadow that Judas is going to be a snake. Um, but the other, the other gospels don't. And you know, yeah. that that's one of those things to, well, Matthew does. Of. Yeah. Matthew does tell you when he, when he enumerates the 12, he ends the 12 with, and Judas Iscariot who would betray him. That's right. That's right. And then John, you know, of course has the scene, uh, when Jesus's feet are anointed, mm -hmm. you know, he has the little aside that says, you know, Judas, claimed to be concerned about the poor, but actually he was stealing money off the top. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, get to uh, that. Yeah. So he little, little money hungry, even earlier in the gospel of John. 
Well, at any rate, David, I mean, those aren't very many scenes. The one that he's most famous for, of course, begins with The Last Supper. Uh, if you could, I mean, lay out briefly the timeline of events from just before the supper until Judas arrives in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and, it, you know, as we've been doing, you know, just kind of feel free to let your theology, uh, let your history, let whatever informs your story inform your story as you go, and we'll chime in as we see fit. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with... Uh an event that only John records and then that moves to an event that uh, you also find in Matthew and Mark. Um, you have the resurrection of Lazarus in, in, in John. Uh, Jesus, is, Jesus has just before that given his, uh, his very famous discourse in which he, he declares his oneness with the Father, at which point they pick up stones. Um, and then he goes. Uh, he goes beyond the Jordan. He 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 leaves uh, the territory of Judah. Then uh, gets word about Lazarus. Um, goes to see Lazarus in spite of the risk of going back into Judah. Uh, raises Lazarus, and then in the course of all of that, uh, raises uh, raises a ruckus. Many people are believing on account of this miracle, and the uh, the religious leaders are predictably upset and begin talking about, okay, we've got to kill this guy. Um, bit later, and this is, this is in John, you mentioned it already, the, the anointing of Jesus. It's also in uh, Matthew and Mark where they don't name the woman, uh, but they, they seem to be such closely parallel accounts. Um, in Matthew and Mark, it's said to take place in the house of a man named Simon the leper, um, in John, it's said to be in Bethany while, Ju while Jesus is visiting Lazarus. Uh, I don't think those are necessarily contradictory. You can be visiting Lazarus in someone else's house. It just says that Lazarus is at dinner. Anyway, a woman comes in with some very expensive perfume, which uh, she anoints Jesus with uh, his, his head in one version, his feet in another. Um, and well, I, I again, I don't have a problem with doing both and different gospel writers picking one to tell the story of. Um, and this woman is identified as as Mary, uh, Martha's Martha's and Lazarus's sister in John. Anyway, uh, someone in Matthew and Mark says, "Hey, why has this all been wasted? It could have been sold and given to the poor." John tells us that that's Judas. John, uh, Judas <laughs> is very upset that this 300 denarii worth of, of perfume has just been completely wasted when it could have been sold, given to the poor. And then John helpfully tells us that Judas has been, um, you know, stealing from the till the whole time. Um, so he's not really that concerned about the poor. And it is immediately after this in Matthew, Mark, and John that Judas goes to the religious leaders and said, hey, I'd really like to betray Jesus um, given the opportunity. Right. And, so, and so he waits for his opportunity. Uh, then during Passover, um, while, uh, while in the upper room with the twelve, uh, Christ says, one of you guys is going to betray me. And this is in, you know, Matthew, Mark, and John. Uh, I think it's in Luke 2, can't remember. Um, and then they, you know, they have the scene, you know, who, who. 
John helpfully tells us uh, that the disciple who loved Christ uh, asked, "Who's it going to be?" And then at Peter's Jesus, behest, yes. And then Jesus, uh, <laughs> uh, Jesus says, "The one who's uh, dipping his his uh, his sop with me." And Judas, who happens to be the one doing that, is like, "Whoop! Is it me? Really, me?" And then the whole "What you must do, go do quickly." At which point, Judas gets up, leaves, and then does whatever it was he was going to do quickly. Which is what I tell my students if they ask me if I can, if they can go to the bathroom in class. <laughs> Very clever, a, Nathan. And who, even at a who says you college, have no sense of humor? What, <laughs> and even at a Christian college, most of them look at me blankly. Yes, that's that's sad and and hilarious. So, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of uh, a lot of times the the Judas's betrayal, uh, the focus is on what happens at Passover. Um, as you know, uh, I, I can't remember whose account it is, um, in which it says, "And then Satan entered Judas, and he that went off be and betrayed him." That would be Luke. Okay. Yes. Well, well, Luke is all about either the spirit or the devil getting into people. Right. Right. Well, okay. Luke. Luke may give that account, but you know, Judas. Judas had already made his decision. This is what he was going to do, and as uh, Matthew and Mark say, uh, he was waiting for the opportune moment. And that opportune moment was Passover, in spite of the fact that the religious leaders had already said, okay, we need to kill him, but we shouldn't do it now while all the people are gathered together because there's going to be a riot. But apparently uh, God's timing trumped that of the religious leaders, and uh, the Passover lamb is sacrificed at Passover as is appropriate instead of their conception of politically convenient timing. So, yeah, there's my theology. All right, there you go. <laughs> All right, yeah, I mean, uh, to that, you know, I, I would just go ahead and say that, I mean, you know, obviously David and I have differed about, you know, biblical interpretation before on the show. You know, I tend to lend more credence to the differences between the Gospels than David does. You know, David takes more of a harmonizing look at them, and that's all right, you know. Uh, I would say that, you know, what we've got is in John, because you've got the imagery of Jesus as the Passover lamb, that's the first thing that John the Baptist says upon mm -hmm. seeing Jesus, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So in John, Jesus is crucified on the Passover. Uh, mm -hmm. The objection about, you know, not crucifying him on the Passover actually occurs in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in those, the... Last Supper appears to be the Passover meal, and then Jesus is crucified afterwards. Right. So, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, uh, David would say, all right, you know, you can harmonize these things and create a coherent singular narrative. I tend mm -hmm. to prefer to say, let's take each book on its own terms, see what it's doing poetically. Now, I don't think that those two are mutually exclusive. I think that David can look at the poetry of the books. I can look at the history of the books. Neither of us is incapable of seeing the other's point. Uh, but, you know, one of the things, you know, especially... I guess my question... I, yeah, go ahead. If I can interrupt, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess my question is obviously four different, I mean, four different historical events different, didn't happen. Sure, sure. <laughs> but... 
you know, but I do, I, I, I do completely agree that e that each of the four authors has completely different purposes that they're trying to do, and they're shaping, they're shaping the story as I would say the selection of historical details, but also the the spin on those details and the interpretation of those details are being uh, are being shaped by the purpose of their version of the story. I mean, is right. is is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, and I guess my approach to these texts is, you know, I want to take Matthew on its own terms and see what story Matthew is telling mm -hmm. without getting nervous and saying, okay, but we need to pull this over from John to make the complete super gospel story. You know, I, I think that uh, Tatian's, uh, what what was it called, the Tetrachordon? Uh, Tesseron. Dia Tesseron, that's what it was. You know, and this is a document <laughs> that is you know, sort of a conglomeration of the four Gospels. I think the Church declared that not to be the way that we get the story of Jesus for a reason. And, mm. you know, when I teach these things, I mean, you know, I, it, it does make my students in Sunday school uncomfortable sometimes, but I do tend to make, you know, sometimes I make handouts with charts outlining the differences between the Gospels, largely mm. because, you know, I think of the four Gospels not as you know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and the local news channel, you know, all trying to get at one singular reality, but rather I think of them as four literary portraits of Jesus. In other words, you know, a portrait painter is painting a real person with real physical details, but that portrait painter is also telling a story in the medium of paint. And I see the gospel writers as telling four very distinctive stories about the same historical person and the same savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So again, you know, I, I, I just want to, you know, point up that, you know, we're looking at different approaches to the text. Uh, and I want to, you know, emphasize to our readers that, you know, this is one of those places, you know, if you ever get the suspicion, and I don't see where anyone would get that suspicion that all three of us always agree on everything. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is one of those places where, you know, David and I decidedly read, the four gospels a little bit differently. And uh for the for the record I am more on David's side than on yours in case right. anybody Right. Oh was, yeah, yeah. We're stressing out at home over what I believe. <laughs> you yeah. can you can rest easy tonight, evangelicals. Yeah. I'm on your side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, here is the the goofy one as usual. Yeah. Well, I I I I think though, you know, to I I think I think the the anxiety that um that leads to someone with my position stressing it so much is harking back to Paul's um, if Christ be not raised, we are of all men, uh, you know, most to be pitied. Oh, and certainly, certainly. Yes. And that, and that desire to say the gospels describe actual things that happened. And, uh -huh. And so uh, a, a, a depiction of the story that seems to be saying that he's visiting Lazarus, Lazarus, but then the version of the story that says he's at the house of Simon the leper. Right, and then in Luke he's at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Right, and, the, and then you get this, ah, this cognitive dissonance. <laughs> and I, wanting to say, if Christ be not raised, we are of all men most to be pitied, says this this has got to be history so how are these how are these talking about the same thing how can all of these details occur in the same event 
But then I think you are right, Nathan, to point out that that I can't I can't just turn the four gospels into one mega gospel. I still have to go back and read them individually and ask why did Matthew tell the story this way? Um, right. We because... are 45 minutes into this episode and less than halfway through the questions, so we may want to save the inerrancy discussion for a, another episode. Okay. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, to get to one more event in this, Michael, um, you know, one event in the career of Judas that spurs some conversation is how he dies. In Matthew, he hangs himself. In Acts, he seems to jump off a cliff. Uh, I mean, has anyone in your memory tried to reconcile that? How have you done so? So I did the barest of research for this question, which is to say that I did way more research than I normally do for this show. I uh, pulled a couple (laughs) of books from my undergraduate Bible courses off of the shelf. Um, It made me remember why I don't usually do any real research, because to my surprise, none of my old books on the New Testament address this discrepancy. So instead, I went mm. back and read the two Bible passages. Matthew 27.5 does indeed say that Judas, quote, hanged himself. But Acts doesn't exactly say that Judas jumps off a cliff. It says that, quote, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. So that doesn't exactly solve the problem because it doesn't say anything about hanging and because those symptoms don't match anything I'm familiar with in death by hanging. But uh, the way I see it, you have a few options. You can try to reconcile the two accounts and say that Judas hanged himself from a tree and eventually his body fell down and burst open and then his bowels gushed out. I I like to add that last detail. (laughs) Or you can say that the word used for hanged in Matthew means something other than what we translated as hanged. I don't know Greek. I can't speak to that one. Um, all right. All right. And the third option is that we say that the details differ because neither Matthew nor Luke was there for the suicide and that they're repeating things second or third hand. And the important thing is that Judas was remorseful and that he killed himself rather than the actual means of his suicide. I'm probably, and this is going to get us right back into the inerrancy discussion, <laughs> but I'm probably more inclined to the first way, to the, to the reconciliation. And Nathan, I suspect you're more inclined to the third way. But there's probably I am, multiple I am, but we've already that. had that discussion. And as Michael pointed out, we're eating up our time entirely too quickly. So <laughs> let's fast forward, shall we? Yeah. Uh, you know, since David, I mean, you haven't had a chance to get medieval on us for the last few episodes. We are going to have to go more quickly than I know you'd prefer, but say a little bit about how Judas appears in the Middle Ages. Uh, get some old English in there. Get some Dante in there. Go to town. Just do so. What you, what you must do, do quickly. Okay. All right. We'll start with Dante. Um, Judas is in the central mouth of the three-faced Satan, um, getting gnawed on eternally. He's head down in Satan's gullet, and his little legs are kicking. Um, Brutus and Cassius, Caesar's assassins, are in the other mouths, but they get to have their heads out. Um, but uh, yeah, that's where Judas is in Dante. He's he's ha- his butt, his back is being clawed by Satan as uh, as Satan gnaws gnaws his head. Imagine what that breath smells like, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> the you know, the morning breath of eternity. Um, you mentioned Old English. Uh, yeah, Judas is uh, in the Old English poem Christ and Satan from the Junius Manuscript, late 10th, early 11th century. Uh, Judas is depicted as a disloyal thane or uh, warrior servant of, of the Lord Christ. Um, 
Interestingly enough, Christ and Satan depicts the harrowing of hell, and when Christ shows up to rescue Adam and Eve from hell, Eve tells him that the righteous dead knew that Christ was coming because Judas had passed by earlier on his way to worse torment and had mentioned that uh, that Christ was on his way shortly. <laughs> <laughs> Which is awfully considerate of him, all things considered. Yeah, I uh, read an article about that claiming that this is this is a, a, a tradition that's per, been perpetuated in the church for, for many, many uh, centuries and goes back to Origen who said that Judas committed suicide in order to beat Jesus to the underworld and so <laughs> apologize when he arrived. I was going to talk about that on our last question, so if you want to put that off, we'll get back okay. to it. All right, we'll do. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, there is a Middle English ballad entitled Judas. It's the oldest Middle English ballad that we've got, in which Judas is given 30 silver coins by Jesus to buy the Passover food. Uh, Judas's sister lures him to sleep and then steals the silver. Judas is approached by a, uh, a Jew named Pilate, huh, who asks him to betray his Lord. Jesus ref uh, Judas refuses unless Pilate gives him the 30 coins that he lost. And then don't later, tell it to us, David. Sing it to us. Yeah, uh, don't know the tune. Then later, Jesus tells his disciples at, at supper that I am bought and sold today as food. And, of course, the point of the whole ballad oh. is, is, uh, is the Eucharist that Judas is sent out to go buy food for the Passover. But, but what he ends up buying and selling is, is his Lord, who is uh, true meat and true drink. Um. And also Judas, that women are no good. Yes. Uh, Judas also shows up in the mystery plays, most famously the York and Chester plays. Um, in both York and Chester, uh, the reason why Judas is so irritated by Mary's waste of the perfume is that it was worth 300 denarii if he'd sold it, and he would usually graft 10%. So, thir uh, oh, 10%. so that would have been 30 pieces of silver. Exactly. So that's where <laughs> the 30 pieces of silver comes no from. No flies on me. Yes, in the York and Chester plays. Um, the York plays pretty interesting because uh, when Judas tries to give the money back, he's intentionally trying to buy Jesus' life back. And it's very extended. It, it goes on for a long, 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 long time. Um, he's very vehement. Um, but the suicide is offstage. Hmm. And then, last but certainly not least, is the perennial medieval Judas legend, which we don't know what the source is, but it appears in just about every medieval language over the course of, of centuries, um, which is basically a retelling of Oedipus. Uh, Judas is, uh, while his mom is pregnant with him, she has a dream in which she's told that, uh, that her son will lead to the destruction of the Jews. And so... She puts him in a little boat and sets him out to drift. Um, he's found, raised by some queen in a foreign land. He comes back and uh, through some course of events ends up killing his father and marrying his mother. When, this is, uh, when they discover what's happened, Judas is repentant and he actually joins up with Jesus as an attempt to atone for what he's done. But... Uh, uh, at least in this version of the story, his his already bad established character reasserts itself towards the end. So yeah, that's the medieval Judas. <sighs> yeah, I mean I, that's just some fascinating stuff because I mean the fact <laughs> that that Oedipus legend gets mixed in with 
a story that has, as far as I can tell, nothing to do with Oedipus. Yeah. I mean, I just attest to, I mean, you know, again, I mean, David, I know that I, I beat this drum about every other episode, but I mean, people who think that the Middle Ages are this time of sort of monomania and intellectual stagnation just mm-hmm. haven't read the text. I mean, it's just a fascinating period. Well, I mean, yeah. How many Judases did we just produce? Yeah. <laughs> hey, wouldn't it be a uh, Judah? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway. Well, Michael, Moving I I want to I want to flip over to the other side of the Atlantic here, and I mean, when I was growing up, uh, I had never heard of Brutus and Cassius, uh, really, until high school when I started learning about Rome and read some some Shakespeare. Uh, but somebody I did hear about coming up through grade school, middle school, high school. Uh, was Benedict Arnold. I mean, he was really, along with Judas, you know, who I heard about from, you know, the the times when I would go to Sunday school as a kid. Uh, I heard about Benedict Arnold as the great traitor. And I mean, Judas and Benedict Arnold were the traitors in my mind. Does Judas himself appear in American literature? Or, I mean, does treachery have a new face in America? Well, there's a few things. And I think what you're going to find is you enter the modern period. And by modern period, I don't necessarily mean the early 20th century, the modernist era, I mean post-Renaissance, what you're going to find is a new sympathy for Judas. Um, So Uh. we'll start with one that's not particularly sympathetic, which is T.S. Eliot's poem, The Journey of the Magi. And the the Hmm. Magi in that poem refer to, uh, quote, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver. And so that's more or less a blatant evocation of Judas, right? And right. the, pur- the purpose Combined there, with the idea of casting lots for the garment of Jesus. That's right. And the, mm. the purpose there seems to be to demonstrate that Christ's birth and his death were entwined from the very beginning. Um, sure. That's what Eliot says a few lines later in the poem. So, um, mostly though, what you what you're going to find is is a new sympathy for him. For example, uh, Catherine Ann Porter has a short story called Flowering Judas. And that, that's a, a plant, of course, but the plot deals with the conflicts between Catholicism and socialism in Mexico in the early 20th century, and there's despair and suicide involved, so obviously it's a double illusion on Porter's part. And uh, you've got a heavy overtone of betrayed faiths, betrayed faiths of all sort in that story. Uh, the main character actually holds two faiths, more or less equally strongly, Catholicism and socialism, but because those are in such heavy conflict in early 20th century Mexico, she betrays them both. So we're meant to sympathize mm. with the Judas character there. Uh, the African-American poet, County Cullen, he wrote a poem called Judas Iscariot, um, and that portrays Christ and Judas as best friends and possibly lovers. Uh, Jesus commands Judas to betray him, and then the narrator says that Judas, quote, gave the kiss that broke his heart, but no one knew or heard. So again, uh. Judas is the hero, um, a tragic hero, really. Uh, Stephen Adley Gerges, I guess it's pronounced, has a play called The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. That play actually begins with a monologue from Judas's mother mourning the death of her son. So obviously we're supposed to make the connection between her and Mary and thus between Judas and Jesus. I have not uh, okay. read... What? What's up? Oh, uh, no, I, it, it took me a second, but I caught it eventually. Yeah. I've not read or seen that play. It's It's relatively recent. I think it came out in 2005. Um, but apparently it's a farce. It's a courtroom drama where the lawyers are arguing over whether Judas gets to go to heaven or he has to go to hell. And the witnesses include Sigmund Freud and Mother Teresa. So uh, it sounds like <laughs> a lot of fun, but I have not wow. seen it. 
My wife said she read it years ago, but she doesn't remember it. So, um, am I missing anything, uh, guys? Did, did you have something particular in mind, Nathan? Because I, I, I really had no. To honestly, do some I had no Judah stories that I could think of from American literature, and you just rattled off six of them. So, which I, which I, all of which I had to look up. I, I had the feeling Elliot <laughs> probably mentioned something. The rest of them, I, I had to look. I had to search through. It's just not a popular trope in American literature. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting that, I mean, most of them are 20th century adaptations. You know, I, I guess I was thinking that there might have been something in Puritan literature that talked about Judas or, you there, know, there something. There might have been. In, I am not a Puritan specialist. Okay. I or, you know, Hawthorne seems like he might have wanted to say something about Judas, but it doesn't seem like that was the case. I can't mm-hmm. think of anything in Hawthorne. Uh, unfortunately, okay. I don't have any kind of master concordance for uh, American literature. Uh, or I could just look up Judas because that would have made my job last night preparing this much much easier. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> no, that's okay. I this is something I, I uh, you should have expected me to know, and I should have known. And uh, I, I apologize well, I for didn't our readers. I know what Iscariot meant. So what what should I expect from anyone? <laughs> well, at any rate, you know, I mean, Michael, you've already given us some really good 20th century, 21st century Judases. I mean, two of them that I find most memorable are the one I mentioned earlier, the one from The Last Temptation of Christ from Cousin Zaucus, uh, and also, more recently, the sort of rat man uh, who is sneaking <laughs> around Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. I've not seen Jesus Christ Superstar. I've heard people talk about it. I want to go around the horn. I mean, David first. I mean, are there any modern or postmodern Judases? that you spend any time thinking about? And I mean, what strikes you about Judas in our own lifetime? Huh. Never saw Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, I don't see never... the movie. Read the novel. Yeah, it is never... uh, one of the worst movies ever made. But oh, one my... of the best novels ever written. <laughs> never saw The Passion of the Christ either, um, though I have read the book. Um, that was a joke. Anyway. Um... Oh, I get it because the book is the New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, yeah, I, I, I've I've never seen a movie in which Judas was depicted. I did, however, watch The Matrix. Ah, and the the character of Cipher, who uh, is is part of uh, well, uh, part of Neo's little resistance team, but who ultimately uh, uh, become becomes a turncoat, sells sells right. them out. To, if you uh, haven't seen The Matrix yet, David's going to spoil it because you should have yeah. seen it by now. Well, but that's that's a plot point that's like, you know, it's like three plot points in and there's still two oh, more sure, before sure. the end. Go anyway, ahead. Um, and, it's, and it's foreshadowed pretty early on anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the character of Cypher, I, th- I mean, I think pretty, pretty clearly the siblings Wachowski at that time, brothers, um, <laughs> were – yeah, they were definitely going for a whole Jesus thing. Um, that that was what they were working with. They had their Joseph Campbell, and and they and they wanted to they wanted to do the whole Messiah bit. And so, hey, let's 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 do a Judas, and that's that's basically I, I believe what we're supposed to see Cipher as. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, within the cosmology of the Matrix. You know, you have the simulated world in which people live in, you know, unconsciously, not conscious of the real world outside of it. And Cypher's bargain, his 30 pieces of silver, are to be put back into the Matrix and to forget that the real world ever existed. Um, 
his uh, what what he wants is to be able to shut out that knowledge of the outside, which uh, which is disturbing and has caused crisis in his life. He wants to shut that out and be content in the shadow world, um, enjoying the sensory pleasures that it offers, which are ultimately unreal. But even though he knows that. Um, he would prefer that to ignorance is bliss, baby. Yeah. Yes. He would. Yeah, exactly. He would prefer <laughs> That's his that. Line. Yeah. 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 Deep. Yeah. He, he would prefer that to, to the, the suffering of the knowledge. Right. And now has. that I'm thinking of it, I didn't even think of the matrix when I asked you this question, David, but I mean, it's revealed earlier in the movie too, that since he has been out of the construct, uh, he's become a heavy drinker. Mm hmm. Right. He can't handle the truth. <laughs> Don't get me rolling on that. Anyway, Michael, how about you? Any <laughs> any recent Jesus any recent Judases, pardon me, that strike you as compelling? I have never seen Passion of the Christ, Jesus Christ Superstar, Godspell, or even the greatest story ever told. Um, <laughs> so I don't have much of an answer for this question. I gotta admit, Judas has always been kind of a mystery for me, maybe even more mysterious than Christ, just because, I, I, like I said, I haven't really seen any representations of him that I can remember. And when I think about the Gospels, he always kind of lurks in the shadows. I do have one question for you, Nathan. Um, you seem right. to have seen The Passion of the Christ. Yes. That movie got blamed for a good amount of anti-Semitism because of its portrayal of Judas. Did you find that uh, portrayal to be stereotypically Jewish? No, I didn't. I mean, I did find... I'll admit that I did find disturbing the fact that the... Jerusalem priesthood looked very, very, very Judas, but the disciple John did not. Uh, and really, Jesus, in my mind, didn't either. Uh, you know, I honestly, I think the anti-Semitism thing was overplayed. I think the far more interesting thing about that movie was the sort of torture porn angle to it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I know I'm going to get in trouble. We're going to get comments on the pod on the web page for that. But frankly, I mean, the fact that you know what the gospel of Mark spends half a verse on Mel Gibson stretches out into 20 minutes. Frankly, yeah, I, think- I was, I was at Bible college when that movie came out and I, I'm fairly convinced I'm the only person at the school who didn't see it. I, I just have no interest. I have no interest in watching someone be tortured and killed. I think I can understand Christ's sacrifice, um, well enough without having to see somebody go through it. And by the way, listeners, I am perfectly happy to read your defenses of Passion of the Christ. Please post them on the blog. Uh, Mm. But I I do maintain that, I mean, that movie overplays something that the Gospels don't see fit to dwell on. And frankly, I think that makes it a bad movie. All right. On the other hand. Okay. Give me the other hand. Passion plays are an incredibly venerable tradition. Yeah. They've They've been around super long. And there, there are or were until you know fairly recent decades, um, uh, parts of the world. I believe it, I believe it was a tradition in the Philippines, in which young men would actually volunteer to be crucified. Oh, that Not hasn't to, ended in recent decades. They they show it uh, on the news every year. Still? Okay, okay. So, yeah. So, so yeah, not not to the death, but um, you know, as they say in Princess Bride, to the pain. Yeah. And. And so this this uh, aesthetic, or in that case, personal participation in the passion, is is something quite venerable. Uh, I would connect it with the stigmata um, that many saints in in the Middle Ages 
uh, were, were said to have in, in, in kind of sympathetic connection with Christ and his wounds. Um, the, the, the modern, I, I would see it as a fairly modern thing to shy away from it and see it as, and to, to see it as torture porn. Um, if you read, uh, especially, uh, well, Ignatius Loyola's meditations on uh, uh, part part of part of what made part of what Loyola did was establish these sort of Christian disciplines, which are basically extended imaginings, and some of them are quite graphic uh, imaginings of of Christ and his sufferings, and so this this was you know this was part of uh, especially the medieval notion of understanding the crucifixion. Was very, well, I, very I guess I would counter by saying that meditation is one thing. Uh, the spectacle of putting it on the screen in a movie theater is something else entirely. Fair to enough. which people are bringing children and and church groups are showing up uh, in by the busload. And I, I would really hope that they would have more respect than to eat popcorn during it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. But I mean, yeah. I, but but I mean, David. I mean, I I do agree that I mean that is part of the history of Christian devotion. I would say that putting it in a movie theater and charging 10 bucks a seat for it. Okay. Makes it a different <laughs> phenomenon. So fair, Mel Gibson can enough. buy money or get money to buy cheap tequila and a, and a harass the Jews in a, well, I, I, I mean, yeah, Mel Gibson's personal life, even if you leave it out of it, which I would prefer to do. Uh, I think that, I mean, yeah, I mean the movie theater setting makes it a different phenomenon from even the, uh, Good Friday festivals in the Philippines. I mean, okay. I, I would say that selling tickets to it uh, turns it into a different sort of phenomenon, ethically speaking. Okay. All right, all right. Well, we're, <laughs> we've we're all been now, chastened. We're, we're now we're now definitely running up on time. Well, and and again, I mean, I want to encourage our listeners chime in on this because I'm I'm very likely wrong about it. All right, uh, you know. Just to talk about, you know, Kazantzakis for a minute, uh, because I wanted to get to him at some point. Uh, you know, in Kazantzakis, there's a conversation between Judas and Jesus, uh, which just sticks with me in my memory. Uh, and in that conversation, Judas is actually internally tortured because he doesn't want to betray his friend. And he just has this sense of destiny, of fate, that he's going to go do it. And Jesus actually goes to him and says, Judas, you know, this is your role in the story. You have to do this. Go and do it quickly. He says, I know that you're my friend. I know you love me, but this is your role in the story. And it's one of those things that, you know, even though probably my own personal theology doesn't entirely match up with that, it's a compelling human scene because one of the things that Kazantzakis does all the way throughout that novel is he explores what does it mean for human beings to be part of divine providence from inside the human mind. And I think that's what that novel does better than really most novels and, you know, certainly any movie that I've ever seen. Uh, you know, what is that relationship between, yeah, I mean, the workings of God and the anxieties of being human but at any rate, you know, I, let, let me get to the last bit of the show notes here. Uh, Michael, the obvious ethical question, and I love shooting you questions with the word ethical in them because I can just hear you breaking out in a rash, uh, <laughs> has to do with the extent to which Judas's betrayal is historically determined 
divinely ordained, otherwise distant from our range of possibilities. In other words, it's not something that could happen to me. Or on the other hand, the extent to which each of us has some Judas within us. Uh, to close things out, and I want to go around the horn again, around the horn again. Um, to what extent and in what ways is Judas a ghost with which you contend? Well, I've um, I've always found it interesting that neither the Bible nor the early church ever t- takes a hard stance on the eternal destiny of Judas. Mm. And uh, Grubbs brought this up earlier, talking about Origen's idea that. Judas might have committed suicide not out of despair but because he knew that Christ after his crucifixion would be going down to Harrow Hell and that he killed himself to end up there and apologize. And uh, Frederick Beekner talks about this in one of his books and he imagines, and I'm just going to quote him because I've never heard anybody say this better. He says that uh, once again they met in the shadows, the two old friends, both of them a little worse for the wear after all that had happened, only this time it was Jesus who was the one to give the kiss and this time it wasn't the kiss of death that was given. Um, like I said, there's not a shred of biblical or extra-biblical evidence to suggest that this might have been the case, but it's a nice thought, um, I think, <laughs> and uh, it also didn't answer your question. So uh, I'm Calvinist enough to think that Judas had to do what he did and that the world is better off for him his having done it, but I'm also Calvinist enough to think he was wrong for doing it, mm-hmm. and so this ends up being kind of a terrible mystery. And that's one reason I don't. I, that's one reason I like the fact that the early church and the the Bible have not taken a stance on where Judas is right now. Um, so I think the the appropriate response is to hope for grace, even to Judas, especially since I think we should all make a point of identifying with them from time to time, because uh, most of us, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, probably would have sold Jesus out for one thing or another. All right, David. I'm going to go back to the uh, the Middle English Ballad, which uh, I, I discovered in, in research for this, but but I actually kind of love it because even though um, it ain't canon, uh, it is it's, – it's very interesting to me because it shows – it shows what Judas does as part of a plan, but at the same time, he's still very much – a real person in it. When he loses the silver, he is genuinely distressed. It talks about how he tears his hair out until his scalp is bloody. Um, he, he, so he, he's, you know, he's, he's really there. He's, he's not a puppet. The ballad, and I think the ballad, the ballad asserts there is this, there is this providence that's going on that's, that's shaping the way things turn out. And Jesus' uh, comment about being bought and sold in food is a window into that. But at mm-hmm. the same time, Judas is still a real person walking around <laughs> with 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 his emotions and his thoughts and his side of things. Um, and I didn't tell you the way the ballad ends. Ooh. The ballad the ballad ends not with Christ's statement, "I'm today I am bought and sold as food." It ends with Christ's telling Peter you will deny you will deny me before uh, you will deny me after the cro- the cock th- crows mm-hmm. three times mm-hmm. and that's where it leaves off with an unended an unended an unended story that has the, the next step of the story has begun but just the first step and the audience is left to to remember that story too 
And so I, I think there's a way in which that depiction of Judas, uh, that, that particular artful depiction draws Peter back into it so that we remember not only Judas's fate, but also Peter's fate. And, uh, and in some way makes us think about our own as well, that, uh, you know, I, I believe it, it's in a good Augustinian medieval sense, as, asserting that we are part of a sovereign plan, but at the same time, it's asking us, well, where, where, where are you in this? Because the, the capacity for denial is not only the nature of Judas's, but also the nature of, the nature of Peter's, and it's, it's your own nature as well. So uh, I, I like that, and I, I think that's as much as I want to say about it because otherwise I'm going to be penetrating impenetrable mysteries. <laughs> well, I'll admit that, I mean, Judas is a character uh, that haunts me in the same way that King Saul haunts me in the Bible. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the reasons is because I know that my own tendencies echo what W.H. Auden once said in an interview. I, a newspaper journalist asked him, uh, do you think the world would be better if poets ran the world? And Auden's response is telling. He says, you know, absolutely not, uh, because a poet, in order to make a more beautiful artifact, will purge and edit anything out that doesn't strike him as beautiful. Mm. And, I mean, I think that Judas, because Kazantzakis has influenced the way I imagine him, is someone who had a picture of what the beauty of Jerusalem should look like and what it didn't look like was someone who was announcing his own death, who said that a woman was preparing him for his death. Someone who was going to lose in the fight against the Romans was going to bring some sort of salvation. I imagine Judas is someone saying, if that's what salvation is, I'd just as soon see him on a cross. Mm. And I know that I have that tendency, so I mean, Judas is definitely a ghost that haunts my own dreams uh, because I see so much of myself in that picture of Judas. And again, as I said at the outset, you know, do I get most of that from the text of the New Testament? No. Uh, Judas is definitely an artifact of how I imagine the relationships between other entities and other movements in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that construction is something that haunts me. Well, guys, we have had one of our more controversy-laden discussions. I think that's good. Uh, you know, like I said, I mean, I, I picked this topic specifically so it would bring out some of the strong differences in our working assumptions. And, you know, our audience should feel free. I mean, you all are part of this conversation, too. Jump in on the blog. Ask us questions. Point out where I'm wrong. Uh, you know, tell me that I might as well just, you know, save myself a spot in the whatever circle you put Brian McLaren in. That's all right. You, Brian McLaren and Judas down there in the ninth circle, Nathan. (laughs) Getting gnawed on. (laughs) Uh, I want to thank, you know, David and Michael, you've both been very gracious and very engaging. You've, you've fought back against me where I'm squirrely, uh, but we're still going to come back as far as I know next week and record again. And I think that's part of what our project is about. No, man, Uh, Michael, when we do come back, I mean, what are we going to be talking about? Literary criticism. Uh, Actually, David kind of came up with this topic in response to Sam's email last week where he asked us about literary creation and literary criticism. So we're going to talk about the kind of intertwining of of those two disciplines. Uh, And we're talking literary criticism here, not literary theory. 
Uh, right. And we'll and talk we will about the difference. The difference, yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, as I said before, if you want to come and join us, uh, read what we have to write, write back at us. Uh, the web address is www.christianhumanist.org slash chb, as in blog. Uh, if you want to see the homepage of the Christian Humanist podcast, it's www.christianhumanist.org slash chp, as in podcast. <laughs> if you'd like to email us as uh, Arnold Pennington has, uh, we welcome you to do so at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And until next week, uh, on behalf of David Grubbs and on behalf of Michael Farmer, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. What is it you need to hear? It's on your lips and in your ears. Too much static or unclear. Still, still he holds you dear. The hound of heaven on your trail. Sense of direction and smell Knows your need before you do When you bleed, he does too On my own again On my slow, dark Juice skin spinning down.